Hello, my friend. Welcome to another episode of the podcast. It's lovely to have you back. Someone just wrote an email to me and they spelt my name. Let me say it the way it sounded. Sandip. Yeah. Apparently, there are people out there whose name is Sandeep um, who spell their name S-A-N-D-I-P. And that's how this person addressed me. And they had the audacity to say, would you like to do a show? I said, are you fucking crazy calling me Sandip? But... um, Clearly, I'm the odd one here because there are people who pr- pr- pronounce, no, call them, spell their names, Sandip. S-A-N-D-E-E-P apparently is the common spelling. Mine is S-U-N-D-E-E-P. My parents thought I'll be different. Clearly, I didn't need my name to um, help me stand out. I just needed um, to be pushed away from the line. But yeah, Sandip, Sandeep, 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 I don't know. Uh... No, no one can find me. I realized. I think that's probably why you guys can't, uh, you know, write to me. Or maybe you're just a fucking lazy and you don't care. And that's probably how this whole podcasting world works, where you don't give a fuck. And, uh, or everything that you guys write, reviews, feedback, all the ratings you give gets rerouted to Joe Rogan's podcast or the three other popular ones. I don't care. Fuck it, man. Do I care? I actually, I'm happy that I'm uh, doing this and uh, you know it's so it's so easy to go down the, the thing of fuck this it's hard or the other route where it's like you know things will happen if they have to happen but I'm, I'm somewhere in the middle right now it's kind of like eh you know it's like I want to get laid but at the same time I feel you know I've had my share I, I don't know I don't know if that's a good analogy but it's analogy I don't even know if it's a good I don't even know the word analogy I don't know how to fucking spell it it's like imagine if a lady whose name is Anna and her last name was Liggy, uh, like Lizzie, but they made it Liggy. That's pre- pretty much where analogy came from. It's some an, an Anna Lizzie, but they made it analogy. Yeah, that's just making this podcast introduction about names. But I mean, the reason why I thought of my name is because it always gets butchered, right? Um. It's not that difficult a name either. And it's not even that exotic a name because my, my daughter's name, um, her name's Shasa. Uh, everyone till date has called her Sasha. Uh, and some of the other people at home make make her name Sasa. And I'm just like, Phew. so I'm just like, have I given her a name which is going to be difficult for people? But then I'm like, you know what? It's I love the name. And I want her to be proud of her name or at least like her name because it's different because every other parent right now is calling their name kids with those three, four letter names, which are starting with A or with Y. Or it's just, it just sounds really boring. And I really like this name. My wife really liked the name. It's one of the few things we agree on. And I, we decided to name her that. But everyone seems to be getting it like, oh, how is Sasha? I'm like, no, it's Sasha. No, did I just say it wrong? No, I said it right. Sha-sa. It's apparently very difficult for people to... And they're like, but it's so... Can't we can't get the Shah sound as Indians. Like, what the fuck do you mean you can't get the Shah sound as Indians? You have a Prime Minister's sidekick whose name is Shah. Uh, but clearly they want to call Shah Shah. They can say Shah Shah, they can say Sasha, but they can't say Shah Sa. So I was just wondering, because the name's an important thing, because, you know, when I'm gone from this world and in, in, in the legend that I am, uh, just a story, just play along. If, you know, they have this habit, like they name, they name streets, they name circles, they name landmarks they name things buildings after popular or legendary some in some cases you don't have to be legendary anymore like like Mahatma Gandhi was a legend uh, who whose name they use for every city has a in India and has a road named after him typically um 
at least the idea was the most sort of the flagship road, if you want to call it, or the most prominent road or the most prettiest road. No, that's not the case anymore. It's usually now the most congested, full of traffic, pothole road in every city. Um, and then, of course, the freedom fighters all were given a road as well. Like usually not as thing, but it worked out. Like some of the less prominent freedom fighters were given like gullies or small lanes or um, shady treed streets, which have turned out to be you know, still shady treat streets. It's the more popular ones who got the bigger roads, which they would be like, yeah, this is this is what you're talking about, baby. And now it's like, oh, shit, man. Because people say the name of that road and as a result, that person's name with a lot of like disgruntled, like fucking MG road, you're mad or what? And poor guy, he didn't want his name to be used in that context. He freed us from an oppressive regime. And now we just bitch out his name as a result because someone decided to name a really shitty road, which would a road rather, which would be really shitty in forty years after him. So it's yeah, I'm saying these aren't uh, things that people plan. Sorry, my, my something was I was doing some recording, not recording. I'm recording right now. There was some profile that was processing that uh, I need to name now, so I better name it with you know foresight. Because then now, of course, we name cricketers, we name sports stars. Like There's a circle in Bangalore called Anil Kumble Circle. And first of all, there's no circle there. It's just an intersection. Um, yeah, I'm sure like if you're living in America, there's the Martin Luther King, there's Martin Luther King avenues everywhere. There's the Abraham Lincolns, the George Washingtons, and of course, the presidents and all these things. But it's, I don't know, man, what's this thing of naming like inconsequential things? Like Anil Kumble Circle, there's no circle there. It's the shittiest sort of traffic light um, and I don't know why you would name things. Like maybe you can make a little statue or have a little sort of thing in a sports hall of fame kind of thing where you have a certain, like, oh, in a, in a park where you have some sort of control over what that park will resemble in 20 years. Then you kind of go ahead and say, you know what, as a person who you're naming that thing after, I say, yeah, go ahead. But I wouldn't like to give my name, Sandip Rao, to like, if you're doing that, fucking name a pothole after me. Because the chances of that pothole improving in condition uh, and in 20 to 40 years, it not being there anymore, they're like, that's the sand, that's the Sandip Rao. It was Sandeep, but we filled it up. Now it's Sandip, just a bit of a dip in the road. Rao, speed bump. That's See, that's growth. From a pothole, my landmark became a speed breaker, speed bump. You don't want your name to be associated with something that regresses. Like uh, if Mr. The Great Mahatma Gandhi comes back, I'm sure he would like his name to be associated with a beautiful park or with something more in line with his thoughts, with his ideology, with his beliefs and what he stood for. Not a road that has been, you know, marred by a horrible metro construction, shitty uh, roadworks, bad uh, track record of safety. Uh, yeah, because he's done, the least you could do is at least rename the road to something else, like a present politician who did that butchery to the road. Keep these people who've sort of given up their life and their ideas and they, they, they kind of stood for something bigger than this, for a country, for freedom, for democracy, to fight against oppression through the idea of non-violence and, and to boycott various foreign influences. You don't want them to be remembered See, I know uh, through stories and through history, um, I'm sure 
it might be passed on. I hope it gets passed on of the, the world. But as the time from that particular moment goes, father, father, you don't really remember the person, but you recognize the landmark. You might not sit and read in history books how great the freedom fighters were for what they did. And you might not, it not, doesn't hit as close to home because freedom is something you take for granted. Like a kid today will take freedom more for granted than I did in 1990. And you, if you're in 70s, would probably, as the, what I'm trying to say is the date gets closer to that time, it's closer. You remember, you're like, fuck, I remember the days when the British just left. Or I remember the days when things were not as easy, when money was less. Now the freedom increases and increases. You related things that are closer in time frame to where you are and that's mg road or it's a or a pothole or whatever it may be so i think gotta be wise to what we what what people responsible as people who use that name because you got to remember what that name signifies at a later point in time so use objects which have and retain their meaning which have the dignity not just a road which google maps might use or you know Someone might say with frustration that they got stuck on. Where did you, why aren't you coming to, to have dinner at the, the pink labia? I'm stuck on fucking MG Road, bro. Yeah, see, see the, see, the, see the thing. Pink labia has more importance in your plan. There's no restaurant in Bangalore where I live, by the way, called pink labia. If there is, keep those lips sealed. <laughs> but uh, yeah, you get what I mean. Like... Um, See, Anil Kumble circle, you guys might know Anil Kumble, cricketer who played for India. He's from Karnataka and they wanted to name a circle which doesn't exist after him because he did really well for the Indian team and as a boy from Karnataka and Bangalore, they want to celebrate that. But in 30 to 50 years, no one's going to fucking remember Anil Kumble. But they're going to remember that shitty signal and the city intersection where there's always a traffic jam. You get my drift. I don't have to make more examples and I don't want to get into trouble already for saying two people's names because of course, that's the first thing to get our labias in a fold is if we use names and if people won't hear what I have to say before or after, it's just that he used his name. He used his name. Fucking ban him. So fuck it. I think I've said enough and I've made my piece on the topic. Let me know what your thoughts are. Or don't have to let me know your thoughts. Just tell yourself what you think because I think that's easier. But in the meanwhile, I'm going to tell you about today's guest because he is a fantastic person and today's episode, I think, it's going to be out on the 2nd of September and the 1st of September, folks. Wow, I just hit my finger on my phone. I think I might have chipped my nail. 1st of September is this gentleman, Mr. Ed Newmeister's 70th birthday and he was lovely enough to join me on this podcast. He's a musician. He's a songwriter, singer, not singer. He's a songwriter. He's an artist. He's been a musician for... Well, closing on 50 years, possibly. Maybe more. I think more than 50 years. I think he started when he was 16 or 17. He plays an instrument called the trombone. It's a wind instrument. It is also a very interesting instrument. We talk about how the sound of the trombone has evolved, how he, being Ed Newmeister, is attracted to the instrument and didn't pick up just the run of the mill, or I won't say run of the mill, but a guitar or drums which impressed the ladies, but how he's honed his sound and his ear for the instrument and how he leverages that, collaborates with various great artists, how he played for bands like the Ellington Band back in the 50s, I think, if I'm not mistaken. Dates, again, see, Ellington Band, one of the greatest bands. Now I'm just like dropping some some kind of numbers. And um, just the idea of how music has evolved, the industry, the sound, what people sort of have a an ear for, and how he sort of kept himself relevant and how he balances keeping busy with earning money and keeping true as an artist and evolving and honing his craft. Frankly, a fantastic gentleman, had a lovely time talking to him and hearing his story and hearing 
his love for the trombone and for music and for the art of creation. Ed, if you're listening to this, happy 70th, my friend. Thank you so much for joining me. And for all of you listening, you're in for a treat. And um, yeah, thank you for listening to this podcast. On the other side is the conversation with Mr. Ed Newmeister. Enjoy it, share it, love it, lick it, and do whatever you have to do with it. Till next time, goodbye, God bless. This is Sandy Brow signing off. Cheers. Ed Newmeister, welcome to the podcast, sir. How are you this morning for you? Great, great. Um, I just got back from Europe, so I'm still unpacking, but uh, mm. it's early in the morning here in New York that I feel great. Nice and refreshed. It's hot out here, but I guess I shouldn't uh, talk about heat so much with you because I'm sure it's really hot where you are, too. You know, strangely, no, strangely, we are getting about of really cold weather. I mean, really cold as in for our standards, uh, yeah. because uh, the past week we've almost had, uh, I mean, I'm sitting right now with, in the first week of August, but almost like 10 days of rain and it's dropped to pretty low temperatures, which we typically see like in November, maybe early December. And it's pretty cold. People have pulled out like their um, light sweaters and, uh, but it's all changing everywhere, right? I'm pretty sure where you, where Europe was on fire, literally. <laughs> so it's pretty bad. Literally, that's right. And he and here in New York, it's very very hot too and humid. Mm. So I, I found that very strange, you know. Because I I've been to New York. I lived in uh, the West Coast. I lived in a little town in Oregon for a while. And why, Oregon's a little more more rain than snow. But your summers right. in New York are woof. They're pretty. They get up uh, pretty high in the in the in, in the scale. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. Well, that's why they call it the dog days of August. Right. Right. It it gets hot and humid. Um, but one of the things I like, I, I'm from the West Coast, San Francisco. Uh huh. And I lived in Los Angeles for a while. I'd never lived in um, Oregon, but I have family in Seattle, mm-hmm. so I know mm-hmm. the West Coast. And yeah. One of the things I like about New York is that, or is that there's clearly four seasons, mm. you know. And by the end of summer, at least me, I'm ready for fall, and it just mm. makes fall and autumn more special. I've been in New York in May, so that's I suppose technically spring, and I loved it. It was May nippy. Is a great month, yeah. Yeah, I here. think spring and fall <laughs> is lovely. Yeah, just it's just not as harsh. It's sort of got the remnants of summer and the beginning of winter. It's kind of, it's it's. It, it, I love the crispness in the end. That's what we're getting in Bangalore right now. That's where I live. We're getting, of course, with the rain. But you kind of wake up in the morning. You take a deep breath, and that that the kind of the cold air hits the back of your throat. It's lovely. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. So, so was Europe for gigs, uh, or was it sort of uh, just a holiday? Well, it was at this time. It was a little of both. Mm. Uh, my wife is from Europe. She's okay. Viennese, so she's from Vienna, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and she she slash we still have an apartment there and go go back and forth. Okay. Um, on this trip, I played several concerts. I did a festival and played um, a club in Vienna called Porgy and Bess, which is a very famous jazz club. Okay. Okay. So, but I also uh, took a holiday to Italy with my wife, which was nice in Tuscany. Oh, lovely! I've I've heard yeah. uh, good things about. So, uh, <laughs> is this your first um, 
I mean, not first, but is this sort of now the 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 the, the live gigs, these places? Um, I mean, I don't know how Europe is. I've never been. I've heard of the Nazi Jazz Festival. I've heard of a couple of these um, jazz, uh, th- you know, the, the culture of jazz in these places, but I've never really visited. But um, maybe can you paint a picture of how it is in Europe with, I think, in twofold, right? One is the jazz culture versus say, jazz culture in New York or Chicago, uh, and also now how it has been impacted because of the, the COVID-19 lockdown pandemic and how artists and venues are recovering. Well, some of them did not recover, which was really unfortunate. Um, okay. But in general, I was thinking about this on the flight back, actually. Mm-hmm. Uh, what's the difference between Europe and United States, and the short answer is everything. <laughs> <laughs> and people ask me this all the time about the, the, the creative culture or the jazz culture. I, I don't so much think of myself as a jazz musician because mm-hmm. I play a really broad spectrum of music, composed mm-hmm. play. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm tr- classically trained. I played in symphony orchestras, mm. but I also you know, backed up Frank Sinatra and played in a rock band with Jerry Garcia and did all kinds of different kinds of different music. How cool so is that? Uh, mm. for me, I'm just a, I'm a musician and my compositions and even my trombone playing, my improvisations are somewhere, sometimes they're very, very jazzy. Sometimes mm. it's very, very classical sounding, modern classical, which is sort of my, uh, that's, that's where I feel the most comfortable. So this area between modern jazz and modern classical, which is getting grayer and grayer right. as time goes on. So there's more and more cross-pollinization, and that's sort of where I live creatively. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, Europe, because the arts are more funded, mm-hmm. there's more funding and more focus on cultural activities in Europe, it's been for the last 40 years, probably more, 50 more years, uh, musicians who lived in New York or Los Angeles or Chicago and sometimes Boston would um, live here because of the proximity to other creative musicians and great small clubs to to work on your art and your craft. Mm -hmm. And then the money was in Europe. So you mm-hmm. go on tour, you make your money, you come back and you hone your craft and your art. Right. Uh, in the 80s and 90s, it was also Japan when the mm-hmm. Japanese um, economy was really doing great. In the, mm-hmm. I think in the 80s and at least the first half of the 90s, I was in Japan at least once a year, sometimes more. And mm-hmm. so, of course, we're talking about Europe, but it's I think it's the same. I've never been to India, but... Uh, I think it's the same uh, all over the world where the jazz culture is not, I mean, the roots are American for sure, Mm. or African-American really. Um, Mm. But now it's just expanded into a global, a global music. Um, yeah, you know that's a strange thing because we've um, had, of course, musicians for years. Some of the best musicians from, of course, in the in different schools of Indian music uh, instruments, whether it's the Hindustani or the Carnatic, and people have, of course, heard of you know Ravi Shankar or Zakir Hussain and people who've, um, in the, especially in the, in the in the music industry, and right. 
even now, I would say with, with Western genres of music, with classical, and of course there's been many, many good uh, pianists or vocalists or whatever the instrument may be. But I think with jazz, of course, now anyone listening might say, you, you don't know what you're talking about. But I, as far as I know, it's um, quite it's relatively new. I would say, I don't know. I, I don't give a number. I don't have any hard fact about it. But it's come to my notice after I went to, you know, after I, I, I was living in the US, I did, did a little bit of uh, a few lessons in music. And of course, you know, then you, you hear of certain jazz pianists or you hear of certain, uh, the, my, my, t- my piano instructor would say, listen to this person. Some, some Someone else would recommend another artist like New Orleans, New Orleans Jazz. And then you say, okay, cool. So so there are a few bars that encourage uh, or at least encouraged, uh, I would say, jazz sounding music. And I know yeah. for a fact in Delhi, that's in the capital, there are, there's a guy who's a pianist who's opened up his own place called the Piano Man Jazz Bar, and he gets a lot of artists. So definitely there are people now, uh, mainly because, um, I, I want to get to this conversation also later in, the, in, our, in our chat, is about how much money there is in this particular uh, space, right? Because when you do cover bands and when you do pop covers, you can be hired for a wedding, you can be hired for a for an event at a corporate or whatnot. But with jazz, it is it is a lot more, at least from what I feel, it's a lot more of an acquired taste. You have to know your music. You have to uh, you have to be a little bit more keyed in, if that's the word. And that's mm-hmm. why I feel that is increasing, but it is more of a long haul for an artist. That's right. Um, but like I was saying, even with music, you know, a wide palette of styles, mm. Jazz, jazz is similar to say, you know, you just say music. Mm-hmm. Now, what does that mean? You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, or you can say art. What does that mean? You know? Yeah, yeah. So jazz is very similar. I, ca- I call jazz uh, sort of a dialect of the language of music. Mm. Um, and I used to, you know, I lived in New York uh, from 1980 to 2000 before I moved to Europe and I was teaching at the okay. university there in Austria, okay, uh, in Graz. So I, I've spent a lot of time in both places. But mm-hmm. in when I was in New York the first time, so for those 20 years, I had a band that I called the party band. Mm-hmm. And it was a jazz band, but it was a jazz band playing music for dancing and mm. for parties. And we played weddings. We played corporate events. Um, and it's not that it was just one aspect of one of the things I did. Yeah, yeah. And when when you sort of um, edit it down to funky grooves and not not too wild improvisations, especially for sophisticated audience, whatever that means. Yeah. Then um, it can it jazz can be very very. Um, enjoyable for a real large cross-section mm. of the audience is there a sense that some some i wouldn't say jazz musicians but people who come for jazz are they a bit are they a bit like wine drinkers they take themselves a bit too seriously some of them <laughs> <laughs> yeah for sure <laughs> okay because i got a sense like what school of jazz do you jazz. fall fall into i'm like i don't know is there a school <laughs> exactly yeah right because what you just described was fun. Like you can dance to it, you can sit back, you can listen. And 
I want to ask you, so you got, um, you said you, you you played diverse styles of music. Uh, so how did this, uh, and, and when you started out, was it the trombone that you picked up at a young age and you stuck with it? Or did you start with another instrument, got into the trombone? Uh, so what was that um, introduction like? Well, I when I was five years old, I found my father's old trumpet in the closet. Mm-hmm. And somehow he wasn't even really into music anymore, but uh, I wanted to play trumpet. I started playing trumpet. Okay. And, and then uh, when I was nine years old, I went to join a private marching band in Oakland, California. Nice. And the band director looked at my tooth. Mm. I have a crack. I have still, but I had a cracked tooth. And he told me, he said, you know, with a cracked tooth, if the trumpet is a small mouthpiece, you might damage a nerve. You'd be better off playing the trombone. Oh, wow. Now, what he didn't tell me, I don't know if this is true or not, but what he didn't tell me is that he needed trombone players. (laughs) (laughs) And and he had enough trumpet players. He didn't crack your tooth intentionally, did he? (laughs) No. (laughs) No. But I think that, and this is very, very common amongst trombonists, where, you know, trumpet is higher, it's more flashy. Mm -hmm. Trombone in, you know, orchestra music and jazz music, we're all playing, always playing the backgrounds for whoever's playing the the lead. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's still the case in universities now where trombone players are at a shortage. Right. Um, And... More and more so because the music is um, the music education is not getting a focus that it did maybe 30, 40 years ago. Unfortunately, I think in art in general. Mm-hmm. So uh, anyway, uh, short story long, I'm uh, I, I picked up the trombone and that was it. It's it, so the for people listening. I mean, the trombone is is it considered a wind instrument or is it? A, a brass instrument. I mean, I, I don't know the difference exactly, but I've heard both those terms. Well, uh, it is both. It's okay. made out of brass, uh-huh. but it is a wind instrument. It's the the um, distinction between a brass instrument and like a saxophone and clarinet and flute. They're they're all wind instruments because you right. have to blow air into it. Yeah, yeah. Um, but trombone, trumpet, tuba, they're all brass instruments and then saxophone clarinet they would be called woodwinds ah okay okay you know there was this 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 thing i don't know if you're familiar with uh this guy in the uk comedian bill bailey um he does this thing called the journey of the orchestra and he's this entire thing of how he breaks down the purpose and the role that each instrument plays like the woodwinds the the brass the the, and he does it, it it just you know it's obviously um comic uh it's a sort of comedy piece but it's done really well and it it sort of for me in my head kind of made me wonder what is the characteristic of that instrument that draws the player to it well uh, (laughs) it's a that's a great question and you know um i always say that I didn't pick the trombone. The trombone picked me. Mm. Okay. <laughs> I didn't pick jazz. Jazz mm. picked me. I didn't pick music. I've uh, my family was not a musical family, and uh, mm. I I just was into music from really from nine years old 
until now. Um, I play a wide, like I said, a lot of various, various styles, but nobody told me that that was going to be difficult. And mm. now, or I'm learning that I'm one of the few people that really learned all the, not all the styles, but pretty much the spectrum of styles that a trombone trombonist needs to know in order to work professionally. And, and you were not while, forced by your parents into like lessons to be more, you know, successful or more diverse. None of that. No, no. Mm. Uh, it, for me, it was just common sense. I wanted to work. Yeah. And I wanted to work in music. Yeah. So then, you know, I, it was, this is, I was professional already when I was 15. Um, oh, wow. Okay. And the question is, what do you need to do in order to be working? So my goal as a young man, boy even, but especially as a young man, mm. was just to work playing music, playing my trombone. And then yeah. I, I um, you know, established that goal pretty young. So yeah. the next goal after that was play, earn a living playing music that I liked. Right. So I, over time, I started eliminating not necessarily musical styles, but more commercial aspects. And, mm. uh, you know, if I didn't enjoy, because a freelance musician, a lot of people don't understand this. Uh, our, if we don't work, we don't get paid. Yeah. And, yeah. and a job is anywhere from one day to open-ended. Yeah. Musical job. And for the most part, it's one day or a week or two days. It just depends, you know, if it's a recording or a concert. And so at the end of the year, when especially when I was freelancing more, uh, when I was doing my taxes, I, I would list maybe 20 employers. Yeah. And those were the employers who, where I was officially employed. And then all the other jobs, which we call cash jobs. Yeah. Um, there were could be 50, 70, you know, because they're just one day or two days. And yeah, no, that's that. So, so that, uncertainty is it's something that doesn't go away in this business. Yeah, not really. No. Hmm. And that's one of the reasons why I accepted the university position, the professorship yeah. in Austria, because until that point, and I was already in my late 40s, I guess, uh, hmm. I was always freelance. And, and then you have some good I months. Was, then you have some bad months and then the good months you're like, yeah, I'll get a few weeks. And the next month it's just zero and you're like, again, anxiety levels popping up, right? Yeah. Right. And the problem with that that I ran into is when you're busy, you're not really looking so much at the future. This is part of my philosophy anyway. You're looking at what uh, what do I have to do today? You know? Yeah. Where's the gig today? What do I have to prepare? What do I have to, you know, do? Uh, and then it happened one or two times where I, I was really really busy playing one or two or three gigs every day and then all of a sudden it just stopped and the calendar was empty and that's when i learned okay i should probably plan ahead a little bit because if you start trying to fill the calendar at the last minute it's not going to work and i feel that's the crack in which these into which these people or these individuals i wouldn't say it's a kind of person but that's where the management appears right they're like no no we'll plan your calendar we'll make sure that the revenues thing and that's 
before you know it, you've signed a contract. I'm not saying all are bad. There's a lot of benefit to it. But that in the negative side, they sign you up. And the next thing you know, you're just sort of doing gig after gig because they want you to hit certain numbers, right? <laughs> That's right. Well, I've been both. Uh, <laughs> when I was young, when mm -hmm. I was 15, 16, we had a management and had, we signed a contract and almost signed our life away. You know, it was crazy. Oof. Okay. But we were in this youth band and we did TV shows. Uh, and, you know, we thought we were we were ready to go. Yeah, but yeah. It didn't really go. And I mean, we were working. Yeah. In San Francisco. But uh, so I guess the manager sent some tapes around uh, to get sort of uh, with management companies or people really in the business. And they came back and said, well, it's a good band, but it's not original at all. Yeah. Which was totally true. I still have the letter um, mm. in my archives. Right. Um, and luckily, that, you know, it didn't last that long, but it really gave me a foothold into the um, the world of music. Um, what a lot of people don't really realize, and I think it's probably similar for stand-up or just people working in the arts in general. It's, a manager it's... is not going to sign you yeah if he has to work yeah i learned that the hard way you know because the thing is now of course the the nature of the beast is social media and how many footprints you have there and you can be right. the crappiest uh whatever i don't want to say sell out or whatever but you can be you can be someone who's just got one year under your belt one you've probably got 20 minutes of material but you just somehow clicked with social media followers and they can you know they, they'll they'll fall at your feet to give you a special on these platforms because and you see this even at the Edinburgh Fringe, or I'm sure you've witnessed many of these stories where you have people who just go their entire career unnoticed because they just aren't good at marketing themselves. Well, I have several colleagues, musical friends mm -hmm. that are, I would say, genius level. Yeah. And they're totally unknown because they're not self-marketing. Mm. And... You know, I fall sort of kind of in between because I really, like I said, I wanted to be successful. Yeah. So I did the research uh, about um, publishing and promotion and marketing. Um, this was all before social media. So I'm yeah. and I'm still still working on it. Yeah. And I, I did have one manager in Italy for a while and she booked concerts for me, European tours. And this was wonderful. Yeah. Um, but um, she ended up going out of business. <laughs> <Ouch>. <laughs> but not, hopefully, not because of me. Um, yeah. But it's a hard business when you're promoting creative music and mm. organizing tours. It's a tough it's one. It's an yeah. easy way to lose money. Yeah. Um, so for me, the I would say 90% of my professional life, I was my manager. I was my publicist. I was my uh, accountant. I was on and on and on, and I'm getting to the point, or I'm at the point now where I have people helping me. Yeah. So social media people, this helps a lot because I'm just not into social media. Yeah, we just spoke about it before the call. I, I can't, I don't understand. Yeah. Uh, they have so many th different ways you're supposed to put a photo or a video. It's just like, really? Is, is can life really be that hard? It doesn't have to be. <laughs> <laughs> Well, yeah. And now that I have people, it's mainly one person, but people yeah. helping me with that, yeah. I still have to feed them the information to yeah. a point. 
but it takes a lot of pressure off me and it's something I don't have to think about. You know, I know that there's going to be two posts a week or whatever, you know, I know that what gigs I have coming up will get posted. Uh, Generally speaking, things like that are the things that uh, it's not that I forget to do. I just never or don't always have time to take care of it. Yeah, it seems, you know, it's sort of one of those things that happened just before things went into, you know, the lockdown 2020. I was almost like in this position I was doing at that point, I was sort of maybe 13 years into like my stand-up career. And I was almost like spending more time thinking about other things than actually being funny and enjoying that. I was thinking more about the other things like why am I not getting enough ticket sales? Why am I not getting enough shows picked up? Why am I not traveling enough? And I'm like, is this, this doesn't feel right because, I mean, I want I would like you to sort of shed some light on this because you've been a musician for quite a long time and you've seen the various landscapes that the entertainment industry has gone through from uh, the mode of distribution to the way people consume it, to streaming, to the way people market themselves, various things. So what what, what is something an artist has to do to keep his or her head above water? Because it's so many elements, right? One is to be relevant. One is to be unique. One is to be popular. One is to be grounded. There's so many <laughs> points and counterpoints. One is to be original. At the same time, you have to kind of get food on the table or a steady income. The other one is to be uh, innovative yet keep your style i don't know it's just it just every point you mention has a counterpoint so can you maybe talk talk uh, me through some of that stuff you've experienced personally well one of the things that i think make my uh i want to call it product my output unique yeah. is that from the very very beginning i always kept my creative flame burning Okay. And I everything else I did was to support my creative, I would say, habit even. Uh, mm. um, a lot of musicians, um, I've learned the creative aspect is not maybe quite so important. Mm. So I'll just use uh, the, the cities I know the most, which is San Francisco, Los Angeles, and New York. Mm. Um musicians if you're you know really high level professional musician you can work in the studios you can work in theater Mm. um and you can make a really good living right but it's not really creative yeah you're playing your instrument and hopefully you're playing music that was composed and arranged by somebody really good not always the case but hopefully right um because I always wanted to uh, pursue my creative life, mm. I had to find a way to support that. So in my, let's say, earlier career, I supported it by playing more commercial music. Mm. So I did recording sessions for television and movies, right. uh, theater work. I played weddings, bar mitzvahs, bat mitzvahs, mm. uh, even Chinese funerals. I would go, you know, <laughs> you would go play. Uh, right. And Not that Chinese funerals are funny, but it, yeah, I, I get, I get you as an artist. Sometimes you're like, can you, you can perform? imagine. Yeah, <laughs> I can imagine. <laughs> there goes Mr. Wang. Like, <laughs> uh, yeah, it's interesting because yeah. the, the, they show their wealth 
by how big the band is marching in front of the right the um the funeral procession mm. um and then as i got more and more busy and my creative life was starting to bring in some income then i could you know just just say politely say no to certain things that were less interesting mm. um my observation now is that the musicians who are continuing their creative pursuits or mm-hmm. most of them are teaching in universities okay okay and the musicians the composers that i really admire many classical composers and jazz musicians as well almost exclusively have some kind of university position mm. and it's not the it's changing it has changed but once you like have a profile a certain profile and resume then it's possible to get a teaching position or a residency or some some support um now back in the 80s and 90s and probably and certainly before jazz musicians they earned the, their the money in the studios hmm. and you could make really good money in the studios and then go play your jazz gigs at night and then make a tour you know tour from that sounds like a fun day just like a, such a fulfilling day right you do what you uh, what you have to do in the daytime and you do what you want in the night exactly yeah um and but the recording work over the last 30 years has really changed it's now it's more computer based and synthesizers hmm. and it's not so you could still well just put it in context when i first moved to new york in 1980 uh there were probably 20 to 25 maybe 30 trombone players not musicians trombone players who were hmm. earning a living mostly in the studio Oh wow. Okay, that's that's now, quite that's quite big, yeah. Now I don't think there's anybody, you know, mm. that exclusively does that. Um they play theater and they do different things and maybe teach a little bit. But the recording work is just not as lucrative as it used to be. In Los Angeles, it's still possible to a point because most a lot of the movie big Hollywood yeah. movie dates are are recorded there but not all london there's a lot and it's more international but the, the small yeah. group of uh, busy recording musicians are still able although they do teach and they do um yeah we have to piece together our life yeah. somehow um now there was in my observation if you're a recording musician if you're a studio musician you have to be a chameleon you have mm. to do what the job is mm you can't come in and be creative not really you know yeah um you you look at the music on the paper and you play it in the style that was intended and you know you get your money and you go yeah and consequently the was yeah yeah consequently studio musicians had a tendency to lose their own voice hmm and when they did their creative projects uh you don't necessarily or this is one of my observations and even complaints back in the day you they, you kind of lose their personality and 
there were two musicians that happened to be brothers that uh, really inspired me. And maybe you, you've heard of them. They're very famous. Michael Brecker and Randy Brecker, the Brecker brothers. Okay. Um, super famous uh, horn players. Okay. And I would work in the afternoon with them in a studio playing some stupid television music. Mm. And then I'd go see them playing at a jazz club in New York, and they never lost their own personality. Now, I don't know if how conscious that was, if they, yeah. it, it was just natural. And a lot of other musicians didn't, let's say, retain their own creative personality as much. So for me, that was very inspiring. Yeah. And even though it's good I to have those one or two examples that keep you, uh, oh yeah, hopeful and keep you alive in that space, right? Because if everyone goes to this side and just does the chameleon nature of the job, then you're just like, what's the point, right? Well, the, yeah, there is a point, and that's money. Yeah, I mean, what's <laughs> and, the point of being creative? Like that's what I meant. Like, what's the point of keeping your personality, your style? Yeah, and for some people, um, I think it's not as important as it was for me. Yeah. Um, for me, that was the most important thing. How do you, but, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. It, it, how do you like, yeah, justify that? Because it's such an important thing and I think it's amazing and hats off to you for doing that. But in, and I, you know, I, sorry if I cut you off, if you had more to say, of course. No I'm, problem. I'm, no, uh, go ahead. Now, I was wondering, you know, a couple of things, of course, I want to come back to this whole idea of the changing landscape and how with social media and digital. But before that, I want to ask you as an instrument like the tom the trombone, uh, unique sound, of course, when kids are encouraged to play an instrument, of course, it's maybe the big five, right? Maybe it's a guitar, maybe it's piano, maybe it's drums, maybe it's to some extent violin or um, maybe it's the flute. I don't know. I'm just off the top of my head. But right. Um, and, you know, you think, okay, a guitarist can go strum his guitar, strum her guitar. They can, you know, they can, they can busk a little bit and get some money or maybe they can be a part of a band. So you think of the diversity of the instrument. So with the trombone, um, what is the sort of ability to have a solo career and how important is it to find the right collaborations and can you sort of um, do all of it yet? I mean, you spoke about keeping your unique your unique style and also playing different kinds of styles and doing it all in the in the capacity of what the trombone can do. But how is that as an instrument? Like how how how? I mean, I wouldn't say popular, but how appealing is it when it comes to the collaboration circuit? One interesting thing is not exactly answering your question, but when yeah. there's a when there's a poster for a jazz festival, yeah. There's almost always a picture of a trombone <laughs> because visually yeah. the trombone, yeah. you know, is it, a thing with the slide and everything. Yeah. And there might not even be a trombone player on the festival, but there's right. almost always a picture of the trombone. So it's representative um, of that. Yeah. 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 It's quite amazing. But yeah, being a creative trombonist, uh, <laughs> you know, <laughs> I don't even know what to say about that. Um, I'm still chipping away. I'm, I'm approaching 70 years old mm. and I'm still working on it, you know, and I think I have a good chance. <laughs> <laughs> now, I, I didn't uh, sort of come at the question from what's the point of playing the trombone, but 
how do you how do you kind of find the sound let's call it that like how do you find this the right sound to collaborate with i know there are arrangements in jazz or in the orchestra where each instrument has its place but when you go solo you want to have a creative expression of what you've composed so what are, what are the, maybe the I think that what what is the approach you take when you want to because I know you are a composer you're also a producer so what do you look for in a collaboration let's put it that way because I know your career is fantastic I wasn't undermining it in any way but I was just trying to understand <laughs> oh. your your approach yeah um well one of the reasons I live in New York mm-hmm. is this is the center of the creative music world mm-hmm. for sure yeah there are great musicians everywhere but right. there's not the quantity and quality of musicians anywhere else in the world mm. um and so what i'm looking for personally with my collaborators are musicians playing at the highest level that can read music mm-hmm. because jazz music music is it's not so um you don't always read it you know right. it's um uh, it's you're improvising and little it can be a little more loose but okay. since i'm composing i'm composing music that's highly structured okay and people tell me it's difficult but we'll call it complex hmm. but at the same time i i need players who can improvise within these complex structures ah okay Okay. And there's very few people in the world that are at that level. Mm. And most of them are in New York. Right. Now there are, so consequently because I've traveled a lot as a soloist and then I'm I don't want to say picking up but I'm put together with different bands. I play with, yeah. I I would, you know, go and play just for example a club in Copenhagen and there's musicians that I never met mm-hmm. that I have to, that I'm playing with and we have a short rehearsal and a concert mm-hmm. the first 5 minutes of the rehearsal I have to um sort of figure out their level and their best abilities so that I don't want to challenge them too much yeah so that we can have fun playing right and I, right you know That's... I have I have especially when I was younger tried to force them to play my original compositions and then it just got frustrating because they weren't at the level to do that also sort of defeats the purpose right it becomes almost like i can play it better you can play it better so the music kind of rivals as opposed to sort of what's the word like the the cohesion sort of making something larger exactly or the middle ground it took yeah. me a long time to realize this because i'm a composer and i want to play my music mm. but i'm happy playing a standard you know jazz tune too that everybody yeah. knows or yeah. the blues or something that's familiar I'm completely okay with that yeah uh so that is what I'm looking for in my collaborators is mm. of course the highest level but also um players that are able let's just say they have classic training or they're able to read notated music and be creative and free within that context. Uh-huh. Um just for example, I have a concert tomorrow night with oh, nice. my quartet. Mm. And um the bass player his his mother recently passed away so he has to go away 
for a funeral for his mother's funeral mm. and so i had to get a substitute right. i learned as my plane touched down last night that's what i i opened my phone and that was my first oh. message okay. from him right luckily i only had to make one phone call okay. although we don't make phone calls anymore you know text messages yeah, or whatever yeah 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 and yeah. i was able to get another world-class musician to play the concert and without um, me compromising the music. Right. Some years ago, uh, I have my jazz orchestra. I was recording my jazz orchestra mm. in, in New York. And for some certain positions, because that's an 18-piece orchestra, some yeah. of the positions um, I had to make, I would say, between 8 and 10 calls before I found somebody that was available for the mm. whole thing. Right. Now in New York, I was, I was, it was the 10th call and I'm still talking to a world-class musician. Mm. There's no other city where that's, that's, that's possible. pretty amazing. Wouldn't it have just been simpler to be like a DJ? <laughs> just, <laughs> <laughs> uh, it would have been. If any DJ is listening right now, I apologize. I'm not taking away from your skills. <laughs> <laughs> well, the DJs have taken away a lot of musicians' gigs. Um, yeah. And in that regard, and what you know, again, when I was growing, coming up in the music mm. business, yeah, a big part of my income was playing for people dancing, playing in clubs, yeah. and playing for people dancing, not just concerts. Yeah. And nowadays, most of those gigs. Are, are done if there's a person there at all it's, it's a dj it's a dj yeah so hmm. um that's just we at the beginning we all were complaining you know yeah. um but that didn't help that didn't that get didn't the help. gigs back okay. <laughs> so yeah, you know it's i want to understand like oh, about your instrument right just a little bit because i i find it fascinating how um i think in your talk you gave uh that the, the you speak about the focus that you need uh, because you can't think of the various movements. And you talk about how the air moves over your tongue and that sort of feeds into the instrument, into the trombone, into the passageway at various angles, creating different sounds. Um, and it almost, for me, it felt like when I heard a couple of your pieces, uh, it almost sounds like, you know, because of course the guitar, you use your hands, piano, you use your hands, and a lot of it is coordination, muscle memory. But in this case, I after you mentioned what you did, it felt like almost you're speaking into the instrument. Using your tongue, the manipulation of your tongue. I don't know. Does that make sense at all? Oh, yeah. Um, mm. Well, people compliment me all the time because I sound like um, either I'm speaking or singing. And uh, mm. When I, you're playing your instrument? When I'm playing my instrument. And right, right. I think it's... I never thought about it as people started complimenting me. And my first reaction was, well, I thought that's what we were supposed to do. <laughs> yeah. I just heard uh, before this, I was listening to you, your album Alone Together. Um, uh, yeah. And you were playing on that. And I was like, it sounds like someone's, you know, someone's doing something with their mouth. It's not an instrument. And I think that was you playing that, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's. I was just like, mm, yeah. I need to ask uh, Ed how... Uh, you know, it, it, yeah, because of course, I mean, it takes talent to play. Every instrument involves a lot of talent and dedication, discipline and practice. But it's it was 
it, stu- it stood out for me because you spoke so specifically about the passage of air over the tongue. Then I heard it and I was like, it's almost like, yeah, you're, you're talking and instead of your lips projecting the sound, it's this extension, right? Yeah, exactly. Well, one of the things you learn as a brass player is vowel sounds. So mm. if you want to get an open classical sound, you mm. think all, all, all. Right. And then in the upper register, it's more E, E. So it's where the tongue is moving and how the airstream is flowing. Mm. Uh, so that's sort of the basics of it. And then because of some of the bands I was in, I was in the Ellington band for quite a while and the Mel Lewis band, mm-hmm. where I had a lot of solos with this plunger mute. Right. And and the pl- just for people who are listening, uh, plunger mute is literally... The, the bottom end of a toilet plunger. And okay, I was going to, I didn't, I didn't want to say anything because I didn't want to come across as too ignorant or like a know-it-all, but I'm glad you clarified that. <laughs> and my, I, you know, every plunger, every mute actually has its own particular sound. And mm. so I was really exploring uh, the possibilities just with the mute. Mm. Uh, what, what are wh- why does this mute sound different? Not so much why, but mm. you know, um, this mute sounds different than that one. What which one is my mute? Which one should I use? Yeah. And uh, through, I mean, people ask me this question. Even brass players and trombones, how do you make those sounds? Yeah. The short answer is I don't know. You know, I just do it. <laughs> <laughs> but it it's it's coming from vowel sounds. Okay. And using the tongue for different, you know, like with languages, sometimes like the French roll their R. The yeah. yeah. So there's, there's, and it comes down to overtones, the mm. harmonic series. So if I'm, if I'm fluttering my tongue, it's creating overtones, different overtones than if I'm playing just a normal, normal sound. So do you push, so are you making these shapes? And just pushing air, or are you making a sound from your mouth? Both. I mean, I'm all, the, the air is always flowing. Yeah, yeah. Um, sometimes I sing at the same time I'm playing a note. Hmm. That's... And that creates what's called multiphonics. So we have two yeah. notes coming out. But the two yeah. notes are reacting to each other, which we're creating more, more notes because of the overtone series. That's pretty fantastic, um, yeah. I never really scientifically. I'm still still learning about it, actually, and mm. in my teaching, especially. But when people ask me, especially trombone players or trumpet players, you know how I'm getting those sounds, mm. the the real answer is: Well, I spent hours and hours and hours and days and weeks exploring the possibilities. Mm. So I think, really, the big difference between me and the sounds I'm getting and pretty much everybody else is I just put more time into it. And this goes back to the focus, not just time, but focused time, like really exploration. So that's for me, explorations is really an important concept. And I use uh, for me as a composer and as an improviser and a trombonist, exploring the possibilities are really important. 
that's uh, fascinating. The, f- the first time I heard that sound of, I think it was the trumpet, I don't know if it was the trombone, was um, when I heard the song from the Jungle Book, the song Bare Necessities. And I think in that they have a little solo piece. And I, I still love that song, so I had to bring it up. But uh, That's right, yeah. I, I, I think they have that, right? I mean, I, yeah. I don't know which instrument yeah. it is, whether it's the trombone or the trumpet, but they, uh, that I'm piece. I'm not was... sure, but it, it really started with the Ellington Band in the late 20s and early 30s. And they, mm. he called it the Jungle Band. Mm, and okay. so the trombonist, they were using, you know, toilet plungers to the trombonist, Tricky Sam Natten, mm. was creating his sounds. Mm. And in trumpet, there was different players, Bubber Miley and later Cootie Williams, that were really working on creating these unique sounds, which they called in those days the jungle, kind of the jungle sound. So nice. bringing... And, and because jazz is African-American music, it just makes sense, you know, mm. uh, to to bring sounds, not just classic sound, but sounds, plural, mm. into what we're doing. I, mm. For me, I think it's very important. Yeah. Going back to, I think, even an earlier question, talking about brass instruments, at the beginning, we have to learn a classic sound, or you don't yeah. have to do anything. But if you want to work... Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you, yeah. You you want to be able to play the classic sound. But um and if you're going to be playing in orchestras and we'll call it, you know, normal classical or straight ahead or normal jazz. Yeah. Probably that's all you really need to do. Yeah. But for me because I've got this creative um streak and creative drive always sound singular was just a goal that, you know, I reached early, early, like in my 20s, you know, or mm. I don't know. I'd, and luckily, I never had problems uh, with the embouchure or anything. It just everything worked for me. I had good teachers. Mm. And for me, then after sound, the goal was sounds, plural. That's amazing. I, I, so did your environment or the time you grew up in and learned music sort of influenced that because I feel and this may be completely off point but with the internet and with so much access to people you have a lot more people who can show off or perform online they have you have a lot of artists who are on YouTube making videos of themselves playing the instrument and but let's even go one step further and say with all these streaming music services uh, music streaming services you have all these different opportunities to showcase your music and you mentioned something which was all these sound and sounds coming in but do you sense uh, from when you were shaped by your um, environment of learning and being so keen on expressing your your your, your intention through this uh, through the trombone or or just through focus learning more and more and just not stopping it saying you know what I can play conventional orchestras Um, and you know kind of on the flip side you have today where you have so many people with so much access and in some way I feel with so many possibilities of techno sound digital it almost sounds like there's a lot more similar sounding music out there is that something that you would uh, have experienced in sort of maybe what is the thing that uh, you can pass on to people listening going, this is what helped you not sound the same? Well, one of the things that helped me sound, not sound the same is that that was my intention all along. Okay. 
Right. So I I wanted to create my own original voice. Okay. And so consequently, when I was already in my late twenties, I stopped listening to trombone players. Mm -hmm. I didn't listen to trombone players once I got it, let's say, yeah, uh, or got close to it, whatever that means. Then I was listening to saxophone players and trumpet players. So John Coltrane and Freddie Hubbard and the great jazz musicians yeah. and learning from them, piano players, and taking from them and not imitating or copying trombone players. That's very But to interesting. step yeah. back even further, you know, I grew yeah. up in San Francisco in the 60s. Yeah. So I used to go hear Jimi Hendrix play, you right. know, and... Um, the great rock band, San Francisco was really a great place to grow up in many ways. Mm. And, uh, yeah, I ex of course, I experimented with all the different uh, mind. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I know you, mind uh, this, this podcast is completely uncensored. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I'd love to hear that as well. <laughs> Which there's a but, resurgence yeah. of, by the way, now, I think. Yeah. Which is there great. Is, you're right. Yeah. Um, and so... I, I mean, I had that experience, but listening to, you know, bands like Cream and Iron Butterfly and Jimi Hendrix and Jan mm. Janis Joplin, mm. Tina Turner, and this is before I even knew about jazz, I was going with my friends to these concerts. Yeah. And I think this was a big influence on me. And people tell me sometimes that I sound like, especially when I'm using my sounds, that I sound like a guitar player with the wah-wah pedal and distortion. Mm. Yeah, right, right, right. Not that I'm imitating that, but it's yeah. just part of my overall experience. Hmm. Um, so for me, that was the focus. One of the problems now, as you say, uh, and I think you said it better than me, there's way too much information out there. Hmm. And if everything is available all the time, where do we go? You know, and that's something I have to tell students, you know, if we're grabbing this and grabbing that. And then the other part of that is they don't know what they're listening to necessarily. Mm. A student will come in to me for a lesson and maybe transcribe the solo. Yeah. And I say, well, who's playing the solo? I don't know. So mm. why'd you transcribe it? Well, I like it. And then... So not only do they sometimes not even know the soloist, they don't know the other people on the record. Yeah. And back again in my developmental period, still in San Francisco, we, there was one jazz station on the radio. And every time I heard something that really um, resonated with me, the next day or the same day I go to the record store and buy the record. Yeah. And these are back in LP days. Yeah. And so a, bi a big part of my education was reading the liner notes from the recordings. Ah, and okay. knowing everybody on the recording, I learned so much from, from that. And then I would read about who was influencing this player that I really admired or newly discovered. And then I, whoever they were um, talking about, then I would go get that recording. Yeah. And, and that was my my education now with YouTube and uh, Spotify and iMusic, everything is available all the time, which mm. makes it convenient if you know what you're looking for. But it makes but, you distracted, uh, you think, in some way? It's it's a little distracting and you don't really know 
you know the artist's name, but you don't know who's in the band. Another you don't thing, know who uh, the composer is. Is I I feel I I mean I but but I grew up with with cassettes or CDs. I would listen through like if I bought a new album, like say you know some epic band like Michael learns to rock. I'm I'm joking. <laughs> <laughs> or the big Backstreet Boy. Now, but any album, whether it's Metallica, whether <laughs> it, it you would listen yeah. through. You would listen side A, side B, rewind side A, side B, or the CD. You would listen to all their songs. But I almost feel like now my attention span is like I download, like I say, John Mayer, or I put something, and next it's the next song. It's the next song. If you like John Mayer, you might like this. So you're just moving from a similar sounding sound that you like to another sound that sounds similar, and that's what's sort of being done through these curated lists, right? That's right. Yeah. Hmm. Um, now I almost never listen for enjoyment. Right. It's, it's, when I'm listening to music, it's for a specific purpose. Hmm. It's okay. for uh, inspiration or ideas or or or. Um, now, so I don't even believe in background music. If, hmm. if I'm having a party and we're not dancing, yeah. Or you know, if there's a group of people. There's some music that would kind of work, but I just prefer no music. That's very interesting. Because be, yeah. if there's music playing, yeah, I, I'm going to listen to it. And, That's true. So uh, you probably I'm... should have like stand up in the background, <laughs> 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 like stand up comedians have this, and 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 yeah, maybe maybe stand up comedians should just have like you know paintings in the background. <laughs> That's very interesting because your ears are so finely tuned that they automatically are drawn to that, right? Yeah, yeah. Depending on the music, but for, yeah. the, for the most part. And you know, I've walked in to uh, restaurants. Yeah. Nowadays, you can't get away from music. You know, it's everywhere. Yeah. yeah, it's at every restaurant, every shopping center, every store. And uh, a few times, I've walked into a restaurant with a group of musicians, and they had music playing. Hmm. And I won't say what the music was, yeah. but we look around and realize there's nobody else in the restaurant. So the first thing we would do is ask them to turn off the record, turn off the music. And is that something, you know, it's very analog, the whole, I mean, I, I've got an LP player, a record, a, a turntable with LPs. And it's a very engaged listening experience. You have to like, you, you can't just, you know, put down an LP, put the needle and just go for the evening, like how you do with a Spotify playlist. And right. it's... Even someone as untrained as me, I mean, sometimes I'm like, oh, I don't play LPs. I just have to keep attending to them. I can't get my, you know, uh, I can't have got. And, and that's such a nice thing about music. If you're engaged, you sort of have different experience as opposed to what, I mean, don't don't mistake me. I think it's great having access to uh, playlists, but it just feels like there's right. no importance sure. to the music, you know? That's right. Then it becomes background music. Yeah, it becomes and background. I, I, yeah. I, um, you know, my stepson likes to uh, listen to music when he's working. Mm. I, I could never do that, you know. Yeah. I, I can't be working on something and have music playing in the background. It just it, it would not work for me. Um, it's very interesting how. But, it... So everybody uses it, uses music for different purposes. What I loved about LPs, mm. or I still love about LPs, each side is about 20 minutes. Mm. And especially if there's something that I'm really checking out, yeah. I don't turn it over. Yeah. Side A is sitting on my turntable and spinning 
could be all day or for a week or for a month until I turn it over and do side B, especially if I'm really checking something out. Uh, it's you a just little move the needle back, move the needle back, move the needle back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Um, it's a little different now because my it's my education, let's just say my current education is a little different. But still, yeah. when I'm listening to music now, there, like I said, there's a purpose. Yeah. Mostly I listen to modern classical music or I like to check out what's going on. So I read about somebody and I check them out. Um Maybe that's where I go to Spotify, something, you know, yeah. and I do have some playlists that I can use when I'm driving Yeah. or, but again, it's not background music. It's music maybe that I haven't heard before that's in a genre that I, you know, that the playlists are made already specific and hopefully I can discover somebody new. Mm. or a new sound or a new idea. And it's brilliant for that. It's brilliant for that because, you know, you find new sounds, you find new artists, and sometimes you're just so amazed by someone you never thought uh, you'd come across. And the next thing you're like, you fall in love with their music. I think that's brilliant, what that aspect of the streaming services. Yeah, that's right. So there was something else I was yeah. going to say. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, not to interrupt, but... No, no, please. It's, yeah, I've Because I'm composing. I'm almost always composing. So... Mm -hmm. Uh, there's my day, my work day, my day, my life. There's three things that I intend to do every day. And one is compose. Mm -hmm. One is play the, the trombone, practice, play. And the other is do some physical exercise. Mm. And those three things are the most important things in my life, really. I mean, the exercise part is staying healthy and yeah. eating healthy so but the composition and playing the trombone and since i'm a composer and i'm an improviser uh, most of my trombone playing when i'm alone is me improvising composing in the moment with the trombone yeah so consequently if i'm work working on uh, a composition I don't want to listen to any other music because in my head, my composition is loopy. Mm. And I'm trying, I wouldn't say try, I'm experimenting with different, um, what about this? What about that? Mm. What about this? It's all just in my imagination. And if there's music playing, either the, that ends up in my piece. Huh, right, right. Yeah. <laughs> or yeah. totally distracts me, you know? Uh, yeah. takes me to another place and you don't want both those yeah yeah no oh very interesting because i mean i can you know i've taken a bit of a break from writing new material and i can totally sort of i totally respect what you, your process is you know because it's like yeah you you think of material you think of an idea you think of a premise that's sort of the composition aspect and you have to practice so how do you practice as you speak you you kind of figure out how your 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 pattern of voices right how do you keep, keep people's attention how do you deliver the the message in the funniest and the most capt captivating way so it that's right it's really nice to hear from someone who's been in the business uh, <laughs> and who's been constantly growing and well you know this it's interesting that you mentioned uh, that you're going to turn 70 this year because it uh, i'm entering the new decade as well i'm going to be 40 this year uh, and um, i want to know what's in what's what's in store for mr ed newmeister in the years to come, what any new projects, any new uh, collaborations, and uh, before we wind up, if you could tell me that, that would be great. Yeah, sure. Well, um, 
I have my quartet that I was talking about. I have uh -huh. a new jazz orchestra now. We were talking earlier about inclusion. Yeah. Um, and it's another aspect of being in New York. I decided, well, I'll even step back. You could tell me if I go on too long because I, once I start talking, I'm. No, it's perfectly fine. Stop. Yeah. No, no, it's good. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, when I came to New York or I noticed or just my observation about jazz music or creative music in general mm -hmm. is that the bands, the big bands and jazz orchestras in New York were pretty much a bunch of white guys. Mm -hmm. And then there were a few bands that were mostly black guys. Right. And, and there was a little cross pollinization, we call it. And I played in, I was sometimes the only white guy in the Ellington band or the Lionel mm -hmm. Hampton band. Um, and, and other bands, it, you know, and so um, in order to create something fresh yeah, and um, I don't want to say new, and it turns out that it's um, politically correct now too, but that's not even the reason yeah. I'm doing it really, yeah. is I wanted to put together a band that was as diverse as possible. Mm. And in New York, you can do that and still have a world-class orchestra. And that also brings so in have, sounds, right? Yeah. And I think it enhances the quality of the music, too. So I have, you know, of course, there's some white guys mm. and then there's some black guys. Yeah. Um, we have, I have several women. I have even, um, you know, one transsexual. Mm -hmm. um, there's gay, there's straight, there's old, there's young. Um, and it's a little more work for me putting it together because if yeah. I just called my friends or people that I know right away, yeah. it would turn in looking like every other band in New York. So, yeah. um, and putting together... And has together, it affected the sound of what comes out, comes together? Uh, I, think, I think so, but I don't think it's that quantifiable, really, okay. because... Okay they're world-class musicians yeah and they play the music yeah that i'm composing or that right I'm, so there's not yeah. much scope they, they improvise within the structure as you said but so this because right. i was just wondering whether the, the the influence of what their their culture their gender their race their sexuality does that influence the way they play or the way they express music because of course in this context they can't because they're playing within what you've created but it's interesting to, to know whether that is the case elsewhere but they the... they still do you know uh mm. I, um this is a new project for me we've only played one concert so far um okay. at bird at birdland but this is will be an ongoing project and i want to record mm. and continue with that concept and i think it really affects the music i don't think if somebody came in the audience well mm. somebody who's visually impaired mm. uh and they're not looking at the band, Yeah, um, may or may not hear a difference from any other band except the difference in my compositions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But when you see the band, and for me, that's another thing that uh, I think is important in the jazz world, or people somehow, they don't realize that the audience is actually looking at them. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And 
I think it's important to be visually um, engaging as well as with the sounds, not just a bunch of people sitting on stage. Um, now, I mean, I've, I've experimented with where the band is kind of um, moving around or the concert starts from the outside of the audience and then moves towards the stage or... Yeah. And these are not new concepts, but uh, these are things that I'm thinking about in the context of creating this new jazz orchestra. So yeah. those are the two projects right now, my small group projects and then my larger jazz orchestra. I do have a medium-sized group mm. that um, it, I, I have the music and we haven't. I haven't really activated it yet since being back in New York, but that's one that's on my list of things to do. And, and I'm composing all the time. Now that I'm back in New York, I'm also uh, touring as a soloist more than I was the last 20 years because I had a professorship. So that kind right. of took my touring um, a little bit, you know, diminished it. Although I have to say, uh, I'm not so fond of traveling like I used to be because yeah. it's like, especially air travel nowadays. With the masks and all that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, mask and the security, you have to get there yeah. three hours early, you know. Yeah. Uh, uh, it's a very time-consuming and frustrating process. Um, yeah. And it takes a long time to get wherever you want to go. Yeah, it feels like everything is become, as you said, with everything, the convenience has become more of a hindrance. <laughs> Yeah. And then we, you know, we have the carbon footprint to think about as well. Yeah. So if we're thinking about flying all the time, you know, yeah. what, what's that doing to the, to our, our beautiful planet that's getting less and less beautiful thanks to uh, mankind's, uh, that's another discussion, but yeah, uh, modern technology and uh, is, not being really friendly to our planet and this is something i'm aware of as well and tr you know trying to do what i can but, so those, yeah. that's basically what i'm you know I be, i'm just happy sitting in my room composing to a point yeah but i want the music to be reflected out to the audience so that i can yeah. get feedback in yeah. in that regard so and I don't have an agent right now. Uh, I don't have a, I do have a publicist and he's, yeah. he's been a great help. Um, right. And just trying to keep, maybe I use the word trying too much. No. One of my kind of philosophies, when a student of mine says try, I would say, no, we're not trying here. We're only doing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But as far as experimenting and working on new concepts, and I'm, re I'm realizing finally that I, because I focused on creating my unique voice, yeah, I do have a unique voice, That's and this brilliant. is something that I've been talking about for a long time, and even at workshops and clinics, uh, declaring to ourselves that we're an artist. And it's you so know, people, it's so amazing for people, especially musicians, to hear your story and hear the perseverance with which you've developed and sustained that unique voice because it's so easy to sort of get disheartened and sort of get drowned out by the other noise and and you mentioned that you know mankind and our activities of course it's some of the the things we've done to this planet and to each other is horrific but i think 
one of the good things that human beings have done is we've developed and discovered music um, that's some bit of love and harmony left. And I think on behalf of everyone listening, I think I'd like to thank you and uh, salute you for all the years of um, <laughs> dedication and the you know love for your the instrument you play and the the, the art you um, have pursued. Well, thank you for the invitation. It was a great conversation. Thanks. And thank I you, hope Mr. we can meet in person one of these days. I was going to say, when you enter your 70s, I enter my 40s, hopefully we can meet in New York and I uh, have the privilege to listen to you uh, in action. <laughs> Works for me. <laughs> Lovely. Great. Thank, thank you so much, Ed. I really appreciate you uh, for joining me and for sharing your story and for uh, everything that you've done so far and that you are going to continue to do going ahead. And uh, um, I don't know when your birthday is, but uh, advanced happy 70th birthday to you. It's coming up pretty soon, September 1st. So it's just oh, wow. So weeks. I think the podcast yeah. should be out maybe just around your birthday. So happy oh, birthday. Oh, cool. Yeah. So you let me know when it comes out. And yeah, I can, I'll, uh, I'll get so much. the link and everything. Absolutely. I'm going to send over the link. Uh, and if now since you told me it's September 1st, I'm going to try making sure it comes out around that time. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> All Thank the best. Thank you so Th much. Really. Thank you. Pleasure. Hey, thank you so much for listening to this episode. If you like what you heard, please do check out the other episodes on YouTube or wherever you get your podcast. And I would much appreciate it if you could like the video, share it with people who you think might enjoy it. And of course, do subscribe to the channel because it will help me and the podcast grow and reach more people just like you. So thanks again. Appreciate it.